This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Wadjuk people from among the Noongar people in Perth, WA. We pay respects to elders past and present and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded and that colonisation and dispossession are both ongoing processes. This episode of the ERRR podcast was brought to you by John Cat Educational and this month we're highlighting the book Building Culture by Lika Sharma. Building Culture navigates the complex educational landscape and provides a look at school culture, highlighting key aspects of cultivating culture that leads to great pupil outcomes. Rooted in her own experience as a senior leader, Lika Sharma strives to share with leaders not only the what of curriculum, assessment and pedagogy, but also the how. How can school leaders bring together the theoretical knowledge that they possess and mobilise it on the ground so that they can have a positive and tangible impact on pupil outcomes? And what elements of human nature can we harness to build the kind of school cultures that are conducive to improving outcomes for pupils? Building culture provides a great start to answering all of these questions. Remember that with the special code ERRR30, you can get 30% off all books via the John Cat website. This includes Building Culture by Lika Sharma, as well as my two books, Cognitive Load Theory in Action and Tools for Teachers. Within the show notes, I've also included a link to John Cat UK, John Cat USA, and Woods Lane here in Australia, so you can make the most of that ERRR30 discount if you're in any of these three locations, or you can use the USA site if you're elsewhere internationally. Again, that code is ERRR30 for 30% off all John Cat books. This episode of the ERRR podcast is also brought to you by Catalyst, a project pioneered by Catholic education in the Archdiocese of Canberra and Goulburn. Catalyst is an evidence-based educational project that's working directly in schools and with teachers across the ACT and parts of New South Wales. Catalyst has its genesis in this podcast and is a structured and strategic approach to bringing the science of reading and the science of learning to life in more than a thousand classrooms. It's drawing on both local and international expertise, including several guests from the ERRR podcast, to realize the bold vision of transforming students' lives through learning by developing excellent teachers and leaders. If you'd like to find out more about opportunities at the Catalyst Project and Catholic education in Canberra, including the professional development that they're running, the way that they are engaging Australian and world leaders in evidence-based education, and even to explore employment opportunities, just click on the Catalyst logo or follow the link in the show notes. What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello, listeners and lovers of learning, and welcome to episode 75 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell, and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. This episode, we have three guests, all hailing from Chalice Community Primary School in Armadale, Western Australia. We have Principal Lee Musumeci and Deputy Principals Mark McClements and Kelly Plunkett. I first heard about Chalice Community School at Knowledge Society's Science of Learning Leadership Accelerator in Sydney late last year. One of the things that immediately grabbed my attention was the way that Chalice was using videos of teachers role-playing students' behaviours to establish positive behavioural expectations within their school. Following that, I heard about the high-impact instruction that they are undertaking and the phenomenal results that they were achieving in a very disadvantaged community. 
For example, despite its student cohort being in the bottom 10% of all schools in Western Australia in terms of socioeconomic advantage, Chalice has outperformed the state mean in writing for multiple years and outperformed like schools in writing, spelling and grammar and punctuation in the most recent national testing. When I heard about Chalice, it sounded like I might have found an equivalent Australian version to many of the high expectations, high impact schools that I recently visited in the UK. Following my visit to Chalice, I can confirm that the teaching that I saw at the school, though it was a limited sample given that I was visiting on the last day of the year, was of just as high a standard as what I've seen anywhere in the world. And the behavioural, emotional and wraparound support systems are second to none, as you will hear in this episode. Since my visit to Chalice, when this podcast was recorded, I've also had the pleasure of meeting many teachers and leaders from other schools in WA. And I've begun to realize the thriving hub of quality instruction that's hidden in plain sight in Western Australia. I'm hoping to continue to explore our Western school gems in the coming months and years, starting with the Science of Learning Leadership Accelerator in Perth in early March. And I'll include a link to that event in the show notes for anyone else who's keen to hear more about success stories and take more insights away from schools in WA. If you're keen for a weekly injection of educational insight, stimulation and resources, then sign up to my weekly edu email. Each week, I share with subscribers all of the juiciest educational tidbits that I've collected over the week, wrapped up into an easy digest and a short email message. Join thousands of teachers across the world and stay up to date with the most important ideas in education every Friday afternoon. To sign up, go to ollielovell.com forward slash subscribe. That's ollielovell.com com forward slash subscribe. Now, without further ado, let's jump straight into episode 75 of the ERRR podcast with Chalice Community Primary School. Lee Musumeci, Mark McClements and Kelly Plunkett, welcome to your own boardroom, but uh, in terms of the podcast, the Education Research Reading Room. Thank you. Thank you, Ollie. Welcome, Ollie. Thank you so much for having me at your school today. It's been an absolute privilege um for listeners i'm here on the the last day of school for students usually there'd just be parties and things like that but this was the earliest i could get away after my final day of school and you've put on a real show today i've, I've seen um some fantastic explicit instruction in a range of classrooms i've, I've seen oh, many aspects of the school and i'm really excited to to talk more about them with you now but just to start off with lee a question for you what do you see is the purpose of school-based education Oh, starting off with a really deep question first, Ollie. I think the purpose is to create the foundation for choice, opportunity and hope. Fantastic. Very concise and mm. clear. <laughs> so, Lee, we are at a, some sirens or something going in the background. That's very, we're in a school. We know we're in a school. We're in a bit of a unique context here and you have been the principal here for, I think, something like 20 years? 19 years, 19 yep. years. And it's my understanding that you've, really had an enormous effect on the school, the whole community and education in this area more broadly. I'd love for us to start by kind of going back in time to the very start. And if you could just paint a picture of this school and, and this area when you began, when you took on the role. 
So I started in 2003, and if I had to summarise it again succinctly, I would say that we were failing in all measures of academic achievement and performance, and I would say that we had an unruly environment for the children to learn in, and I would say that we had a variable approach to the value of, of education from our parent body. So we had poor attendance, we had little value placed on, on the importance of education, we had poor reading results in particular, and we had very low level of self-regulation. So children unable to manage their own emotions and not school ready. Do, uh, do you have some stats about where the school started? And maybe within that, you can even tell us a little bit about the kind of um, cultural split at the moment at the school um, or the breakdown, should I say, rather than the split and the, the ixia. And we'll, I need to explain what that is for our international listeners as well. Certainly, I, we are serving a community that's in a low socioeconomic area, which means that the children are coming from homes that are quite disadvantaged and they're impoverished in terms of not only spiritual resources, financial resources, but physical resources as well. So not enough resources to actually meet their, their needs. Uh, back when I started uh, in 2003, I think our, the attendance of Aboriginal students was sitting at around 65%. And one of the first things I needed to do was make sure that we put in some strategies to encourage Aboriginal children to come to school by working with their parents to help them to understand the value of school. And we did some really innovation, innovative things that worked very well in a sh- the short period of time, but then we were able to sustain it over a long period of time as well. If you're interested in in statistics, we would measure our children's uh, phonics, maths and reading skills in pre-primary. So that's for us, the first uh, full-time compulsory years of schooling. And the children are roughly five by that age, by that time. We would have up to 72% of our children with up to an 18-month delay in their language skills that then became their phonics and their their reading skills, and that's by the start of their pre-primary year. So what that indicated to me was that we had we were sort of we were in a community where there wasn't a great deal of value placed on the importance of education, and the children would start say kindergarten uh, without any of those school readiness skills, in particular their language and their socialisation skills, in order to be able to take advantage of any of the good teaching that the teachers were were providing them. So a huge language gap by the time they were only five years of age. Mm. How did you end up taking on the role? What was your brief? How did you come to take on the challenge? That's an interesting question because my degree is in special needs and disability and that was the field that I taught in and was the deputy principal and principal in that particular field for a long time and that's where my passion has always been. I'm always have always been super interested in neurodevelopment that's not typical. That fascinates me when children learn in different ways and so my very first introduction to this school was because I was told I was coming here by a director and I said, well, thank you, but no thank you because I only want to stay in areas where the children um, have disabilities and have uh, different ways of learning. And I was reassured that in this community, the director felt that I could do some great stuff by just bringing a different way of thinking about individualised learning. Mm. Do you remember like your first week? Do you remember the imp- what you saw, the impressions 
how you know how students look, what was happening in classrooms. Can you paint a picture for us? I do. I do remember that distinctly. I remember being quite shocked because I couldn't understand why, you know, it was the year 2003. We weren't in the dark ages. And yet what I saw in my first week here at this school was extremely confronting and extremely upsetting because I noticed very quickly that the children here didn't have the same opportunities and chances that my own children had in just a a very middle class sort of community. And so I saw parents who were very easily triggered and aggrieved and became aggressive with very small issues that could have been dealt with quite peacefully. And then I saw that replicated in classrooms by very young children. So the state of our school looked poor. It looked like we didn't care. We had fantastic and still have fantastic teachers. They were well-intentioned and well-meaning, but possibly weren't following, not possibly, definitely weren't following any kind of an evidence base when it came to teaching. So we were perpetuating the cycle of disadvantage. And then over the years, I realised that we were continuing to graduate students who didn't have the skills to be successful in high school. And therefore, you know, they were never going to be lifelong learners and we weren't providing them with that opportunity to have choice and freedom and good health and happiness. So we needed to change something quickly. Mm-hmm. What was the what was the vibe at the school? Were were teachers happy to be here? Were they kind of struggling a bit? What was it like? It was a mixture. We had teachers who were uh, had big hearts and were keeping the children entertained, calm and happy, but no real learning taking place. And we had other teachers who didn't quite have the skills to meet the challenges that they were faced with on a daily basis. So there was a mixture. You mentioned um, when you came here, there was 65% attendance from your Aboriginal cohort. What's, what you, what's that at now, just as an indication for, for listeners? We're sitting at 88% this year and that has been ravaged by COVID. Uh, There still is a lag between non-Aboriginal and Aboriginal attendance, but we are continuing to improve over over the years. So as someone coming into that kind of environment, how did you start to turn this place around? I started by acknowledging that I really didn't have a clue what I was doing and nothing that I had learned in any of my previous experiences prepared me for the complexity and ongoing challenge at this school. Like literally nothing had prepared me. The very first thing I did was had a look at the quality of instruction in classrooms and realised that we were doing a lot of playing and there was no actual instruction taking place uh, and a very quick look at our what were they were referred to as WALNA, a WA Literacy Numeracy Assessment back in those days, uh, showed us that we were consistently just failing. We weren't producing children who could read and if the children can't read, then you can't actually learn. So step number one was to try and address the way we taught children to read and that was by turning our attention to things like explicit instruction or strategies like explicit instruction and have the expectation that all children would and could learn to read. So, I mean, whose work did you go to and how did you start that implementation? Mm, Really, uh, that's, that's really interesting. The very first thing I did was... I participated in a in a, a course for leaders that was called the Principal, principles as literacy leaders. It was a two year ongoing commitment to trying to develop our own understanding of literacy, and that was that was I think when I first realised what all of the research was saying about the importance of using explicit explicit instruction. We weren't using explicit direct instruction at that point in time. It was just explicit instruction uh, to make sure that all children, all teachers understood the alphabetic code and understood how to teach it to, to very young children. Was that a program run by WA government? 
That was run by, yes, the West Australian. Yeah, it was, it was by the Department of Education. And was that, yeah. was Lorraine leading that or delivering that? Or she was, had yeah. advised on the design of that. Yeah, we're incredibly lucky. Obviously, Dr. Lorraine Hammond is the deputy chair of our school board. So um, that was another thing we that I realised that I needed to do very quickly because I didn't know what I was doing in leading a school with such complexities. I soon uh, connected with people who have far more expertise than I had at the time to surround myself with the best minds and the best advice that I possibly could so that together we could work on a plan, a, a huge strategic plan to, to improve what was happening in the school. And how did you start to try to implement that then? You, you had some insights in, okay, this is what better literacy instruction looks like. Mm -hmm. How did you start rolling, rolling we that We just started with an early adopter. We just started with a graduate teacher who literally didn't know anything any better. She was the first one to admit university hasn't necessarily prepared me to understand how to teach reading. And so we started with one person at a time. And then we used data to show what was happening in her classroom compared with other classrooms who hadn't swapped over. And we did that for about, I would say, 10 months to a year, which was excruciating mm. because excruciating slow because we could see what was working. We could see the results in the classroom. We could also see how uh, involved the parents became once they realised how successful their children were becoming. Um, each day they came to this school, they were learning it how to read. So there was more and more uh, parent buy-in. But at that point in time, it took quite some work to convince other pre-primary teachers that this was the way to go. And then the following year, the Band-Aid was ripped off and we all began to follow a far more explicit methodology and had a, an explicit approach to the way to our phonics. We just started with our phonics. Was there a particular program you used there? No, we just looked at a scope and sequence. So I think we were following, uh, it was possibly Diana Riggs' work at that particular point in time. Okay. And when you ripped that Band-Aid off, how, what did that look like? Did you just make a mandate, this is how this is going to be taught? And then how did you kind of enforce that? Yeah, I think... There are many fabulous things about our school, but I don't actually mandate or enforce stuff. I We spend a lot of time developing the culture of the school and we spend a lot of time helping people to understand why change is necessary. So we really just bring people along with us. And as I said before, these teachers are all, uh, they have incredibly big hearts. They all want their children to be successful. So nobody really wanted to be stuck doing something that year after year after year hadn't been successful. And we, we could show what a different model of instruction could look like for the children, everybody wanted to embrace that. So it was really just about developing a groundswell of excitement, using the data to create a little bit of urgency and pressure for change, and then just following a change management process. Okay. And so there were, I assume you had like an assembly or something where you shared this data? We did, yeah. And I also had an excellent deputy principal who isn't at this school anymore, but she was actually the one who led the way. She was the one going into classrooms and doing all of the really hard work with the teachers. And we would have massive celebrations at assemblies and in classrooms where parents were invited in. We would have celebration cakes. We would have little goals for the children to reach. And we just continued to develop this groundswell. And then parents began to talk to one another. And over a, a very short period, of time, the new lot of parents coming through started to expect that their children would learn how to read and that just created more and more and more excitement. So the more successful the children were becoming with learning to read, the more interested their parents became in education and the more involved they became. So we, then we had sort of a movement. Mm, that's great. It's also funny to think there are schools where parents send their students there, their kids there, not expecting them to learn how to read. That's just so sad, isn't it, as a starting point? How did you skill up those initial 
teachers? Was it just like afternoon PDs or did you get some external people in to train or? Initially, we had external people coming in and and, uh, leaned heavily on people like uh, Dr Hammond to support us, but then uh, to try and help with, I suppose, the status or the the thinking of the, you know, that very first graduate teacher, she had a role of upskilling other people. We did lots of observations in one another's classrooms. Uh, the school was relatively small at that period of time, so we were able to create extra uh, dot time or extra non-contact time for teachers so they could share, listen, learn, ask questions, go in and observe one another. We can kind of jump forwards in time. What does that look like now? Because obviously you've always, always got new staff coming on. You've got to skill people up. You've developed a lot of programs and methods to do that. Maybe this is a good question for Mark here, Mark McClements. How do you, the, at the moment, continue to improve your teachers? Uh, thanks, Ollie. That's down to our co- coaching culture. We have a comprehensive co- coaching culture in place that has been refined over a number of years. And that's how we upskill all staff, both graduates and new teachers to Chalice. Its origin stemmed from initially each year level would have a lead teacher who had one day out a week and they would be responsible for going in and performing observations of their team members. Initially, there was no official training for that. It was very much um, people who had been identified as good practitioners and were enthusiastic and motivating about leading a team. And so they were given some time to go in. And that coaching initially was pretty much a in the traditional format of coaching observations. They would sit at the back and observe the lesson and then would meet with the teacher at, at the end of the day or as close to that lesson as possible to go through the things that they liked. That was great. We, you know, we were providing coaching for the very first time and that then led to some problems identified with that particular model. Going just one day a week between observations or modelled lessons uh, as it developed into was, was not consistent or it was not enough touch points to be able to implement real change in a teacher, especially a teacher that perhaps I'd, I'd identified some areas of, of their practice that they really wanted to improve. And then that led to our very first academic coaches. That was an idea there where a group of teachers had been fortunate enough to travel to America to work with John Hollingsworth and Joe Ybarra. And in one of the schools where we saw DataWorks um, were working, they had some academic coaches. This is 2017 now. And we came back, thought, well, the, the, the benefit of a full-time academic coach being able to go in every day if required to support a staff member to improve their practice that had real value and so from 2018 we had two academic coaches full-time it was academic at the time it called academic coaches at the time because they were pretty much purely responsible for just um, the curriculum the implementation of the curriculum explicit teaching was the specific focus and then over the years that's morphed into instructional coaches impact coaches as we call them because it was quite clear that we couldn't separate out just the academic side of supporting a teacher it had to be engagement as well and so now it's an impact coach and they do all of that and we are fortunate enough to have four full-time impact coaches that's a coach responsible for k and p one two years three four and years five six mm. and and the coaching has become very sophisticated in that it will start on a on a team dot day in a plc and the coach will, with their year level team, unpack the, the week's worth of lessons to, um, to be delivered. Various roles occur in that PLC. 
So whilst one teacher is standing up and going through, well, this is the maths topic for the next week, or this is what whole class reading is, unpacking it, you know, the, the members of the other team will be, oh, if it's an experienced teacher, they may be able to chip in here with, oh, well, children will always get a misconception here. I'm advising that. Or the role of someone within that team will be to unpack, oh, well, what happens? How will we differentiate that if a student is stuck here? Or, you know, what type of question? So the coaching starts in the planning. Our planning days now are very much in the planning is the thinking that we do about the teaching that's going to occur. It's no longer initially it was, oh, what activity have you got planned for that? Oh, let's swap some activities. That was the kind of low level initial um, team meetings that we were doing, but that's morphed over the years into highly effective and efficient professional learning communities where we've got teachers talking about teaching, how it will be delivered over the next week. And the coach is involved with that. And then as teachers go through the week. So how often, how often, are, that, how often are those planning? Is that like the that's start of every week? Time? So every week. So, and that's at the year level. The year level. So if we're in the year four team, Ollie, that's a Thursday would be our dot day. So one of the things we do is collaborative dot. So all of the year four team will be out together. Um, we're a huge school. We've just got over just over a thousand students. Um, so we're generally five or six stream per year level. Um, my year four cohort at the moment there's four teachers so they'll be on dot together for the whole day and they'll start their dot day unpacking the the next week's worth of lessons and not superficially unpacking oh we're going to do this this and this they will stand in front of their peers and go through lessons and it will be the coach's role or the lead teacher's role or other team members everyone has a coaching role here here in the school will be oh actually do it this way or I don't think we'd ask that question there we would and we go down to quite so everyone gets a trial run essentially the roles are shared out so if I'm doing maths of the week yourself might be doing uh, reading someone else might be doing has we unpack it the benefit of the coach being in that conversation is that over the next week they'll be going in and seeing those lessons being delivered and so that's how they will then give feedback. They've already got a good idea of what it should look like or the coach has a model of what's been discussed and what to look out for. Um, obviously, the coaching relationships are very personal and there'll be specific goals that a teacher will work on as well. But that's how the coaching cycle for that particular week starts and, and is followed up. So teachers are teaching four days a week and planning for one full day. Yeah. That's mind-blowing. Like schools just don't do that. That's... How, what did the what did the students in their classes do on that day? You might have uh, that on so on on a dot. So when those well, first of all, the first point I'll articulate there is the fact that we know that teachers talking about teaching is really important. So that's something that we had to prioritise. So our staff here, uh, that's actually with, they get an additional allocation. We're giving them more dot than they're actually allocated for outside of um, kindy and pre-primary. So our year one to six teachers are getting additional dot. Is dot an acronym? Uh, yeah, so duties other than teaching. So my apologies. Non-teaching time. Non-teaching time, non-contact time. So we use it to plan. And like I said there, the planning is the thinking about what we're going to do is no longer swapping resources. Um, they have the whole day out. Uh, students on those particular days are rotating through their specialist subjects, music, sport, science. And that allows the teachers the time to not only discuss the teaching that will occur for the next week. Our PLCs will also centre around um, data. They might be unpacking, oh, you know, we've done a maths, maths test or hey, we've noticed in our math reviews, stu- students are really uh, stumbling over this. So that's when we'll refine our uh, retrieval pacing calendars or what's coming up. So 
it's teachers talking teaching, it's also teachers talking data and, and specific students and about what needs to improve over the next week so that we can be quite responsive. Forgotten the original question though. The original question was Well, we were also going to touch upon um new staff coming in. But I'm first of all, I'm just amazed at that level of planning. Oh, so, like uh, that's just so Oh, so that's Rare. what I was going to go. So we, so we know that teachers talking teaching is really important. So we had to prioritize it. We prioritize it in terms of time. We prioritize it in terms of resources. And we're also prioritizing it in terms of expertise. So the coach is involved in all those meetings. Uh, myself, Kelly Plunkett or, and Lee herself will sit in on those meetings as well because we know that that is the platform to set up a, a great week of teaching excellence in the school. That's where we are... You know, we are explicitly planning for everything. We have to engineer the conditions for the for the ideal week of teaching. And so we kind of leave no stone unturned in those PLCs, whether it's discussion on data, what needs to occur, or behavior, or what's to or the curriculum. That's the starting point. And that's because it is so important. So as a graduate teacher, being exposed to that who often not always, but often arriving at Chalice at the beginning of a year, perhaps not knowing what we need them to know, we kind of fast track their learning. And it starts with the PLC and the full-time coaches. Some of it will be tips and tricks, just trying to speed up the process of, you know, oh, look, here's the first two weeks. We have a core 10. So the first two weeks of the year is around some things that we think are easy wins. And if you get in place right from the start, it's going to kind of set up that first term for a productive term as it's down to some simple things as how to enter the classroom, sit spots in the junior years, line spots to walk calmly around um, school. It's the routines in class, such as how to pair share, knees to knees, toes to toes. It's how to uh, speak like a scholar, to stand and deliver. So a student will stand up when called upon as a non-volunteer and practice their oracy and their public speaking. It's whiteboard routines, you know, chin it, bin it, park it for cleaning away or hover when their answers are ready, chin it. So all of those routines, every, all of the little things, routines for passing out books. So there are tips and tricks initially to try and get graduates or teachers that perhaps this is new to, new to them to speed up that process so that we can get we can get to the meaty stuff as fast as possible because we have to maximise the contact time we have with students because it's we can't leave this to chance and we can't waste any time because because of our low ixia of nine three six and because of the complexities that walk through the school gate each day we cannot waste a moment of teaching time and so all of those little things add up and then as we go through the year with PLCs and our professional learning that's when we'll also do the bigger stuff around explicit instruction or engagement norms or how to use worked examples or, you know, all of the other professional learning that teachers need to know to be an outstanding teacher, kind of doing that simultaneously. They just go at different rates initially. One of the things that we are most proud of in terms of our coaching culture is our rising stars. That's an induction program for new staff uh, in fact, we've just held, so here we are at the end of the year, uh, we've just held our a half-day rising stars for our 2023 staff. So they will commence with us in January. We ran a half-day on Saturday and we ran that induction purely on culture. So we were inducting for culture on Saturday morning. We had our student counsellors come in and present the student version of what they like about the school, what a good teacher at Chalice is like. So we had the students student perspective 
And we are very proud of our Rising Stars program. It's a two-year induction. It's a commitment of two years that starts with, on Saturday, inducting for culture. There's a day that they'll come in during the holidays where we will go through programs and a bit more detail so that they're calm and ready to open their classroom doors and strive towards that teaching excellence as quick as possible. We've heard a little bit about the kind of adaptive practices. We've heard a little bit about the Rising Stars program, but I know there's more you do at a whole school level to really build that PD foundation. Could you take us through that a little bit? Yeah. I actually can't tell you off the top of my head how many years we've been um, providing this service, but um, part of our dot day where we actually pay extra for staff to be out of classroom for the whole day. And that is to ensure that uh, across the year they get 40 hours of extra professional learning. It's usually done in a session called um, LTT, another acronym for uh, Lead the Teacher. And the sessions are led by either leadership coaches or teachers of that have knowledge based on whatever it is that we will be talking about. So um, we could identify um, an area on which um, teachers or staff um, needed more upskilling in, such as, you know, for things like talk for writing or explicit direct instruction, uh, engagement norms, uh, expectations, routines. We find an area that the teacher uh, or the teachers are needing more uh, skill and we either know the knowledge straight away or we're not really sure, we're going to go find and source that information. So each week the teams come together and we spend an hour providing some professional learning to make sure that they're really upskilled because we know that when teachers know more, teaching of concepts, teaching of lessons are really upskilled and at, at the high um, high standards. Sometimes we actually have teachers come to us and say, we don't know this, can you teach us this? Um, and whoever we feel that's within the school has the most expertise in that area, we go and find that person and they provide that um, information to the um, teachers. So it's just making sure that teachers are keeping up with the knowledge because sometimes time is poor, uh, money uh, is not able to go out and find professional learning, especially when you want big groups of teachers to know information. It's a, it's a large cost. So if we can provide and keep them up to date with the research that's happening, that's the best way that we can do it, um, especially with upcoming programs. So if we have something new that's coming in within the school and we are um, knowledgeable, we will go through that. So a couple of years ago, there was about six teachers that went to America went, uh, spent two weeks uh, with DataWorks and we came back with the expertise. And so we provided a whole year's worth of professional learning and upskilling teachers on uh, what a direct instruction, explicit direct instruction is, as well as on top of that with uh, what Mark said before on what an necessary lesson would look like and how we would unpack it. So we would teach from the bottom, we'd teach some increments within the lesson, they would go away, they would practice it and then they would come back, we'd provide some feedback, we'd provide some coaching, we'd come back, reflect, what's the next thing that we need to work on? Last year, we also introduced book club. So it's um, looking at uh, Mark introduced walkthroughs and myself and Mark also did Teach Like a Champion. So um, during that hour, the teachers would come in, we'd provide time to do some reading because as you can imagine, life is really hard, life is tight. 
um, and we don't have time to read sometimes. So we provided them time to read a chapter of our choosing or an area that we think um, was beneficial for them. We'd come back as a group. We'd talk about it. We'd unpack whatever the chapter was about. They could go off and have a practice. And then by the time we come back the following week, we'd pick up on, did anyone have a go at what you learned last week? And then we'd teach them or we'd read another chapter. So at Chalice, we're just trying to upskill teachers as much as we can to make sure that what they bring to the classroom is of, of high excellence and knowing, you know, becoming really knowledgeable in what they, what we're trying to teach. That's awesome. I'm really interested in that practice part. So you said they can go away and practice because um, I just spoke to Josh Goodrich, the founder of StepLab, in the, the episode that's coming out just before this one, which hasn't come out yet. And he's really big on deliberate practice and I'm really interested in it as well at the moment. So when you say people can go off and practice, what does that look like and how, how yeah. is that supported? And it comes back to our coaching. So if it is something, an area um, a teacher has found that that's like something that they want to work on within the classroom, they'd either um, come to myself and Mark, being the deputy of their phase, or their coaching and say, this this was great, I want to know more, I want to, to be able to bring that into the classroom, can you come and coach me? So it could either be we model it for them uh, within the classroom, we would uh, do some side-by-side uh, -side teaching with them, or we could just very well be sitting back and observing and then going through that coaching style um, feedback session afterwards. So or they might just say, give me a week, let me go practice it and then come back and can you follow the whole coaching cycle from there? I think first and foremost, whatever I'm saying here, so everyone needs to have one thing. One, they, all teachers need to know the one thing that they're getting better at or trying to improve because all of our teachers will put their hand, you know, all teachers will put their hand up when you ask them who wants to be better. They'll all do it. But they've got to know their one thing. And things like book club, whether it's a particular strategy, speak like a scholar or, um, you know, stretch it, whichever it is, a teacher may identify that as their one goal. So they, if they know that that's something they're going to work on and it's got to be a specific laser-like focus, they then have to know how to get better at it. It could be through a coach. It could be through their own personal research. It could be through a podcast such as, <laughs> such as yourselves. But then that's what their focus will be. And often teachers will have many, many little one things to work on, or it could be something bigger, such as, oh, new to the junior end of school, I want to improve on the science of reading. Well, that's huge. Okay, but we've still got to chunk it up exactly like we do with the students. We ask our staff to chunk and choose a goal. And sometimes it is choice. Sometimes it's arrived at mutually through a coaching conversation, or sometimes we give a goal because sometimes teachers are unaware of what they don't know yet or you know, they, they may choose a goal and we think, well, actually, you can't improve that until you've actually done this. I think you should just, your one thing at the moment should be this routine. Put this routine in so that your students start the day in a lot more of uh, in a calm and sensible manner. And that's uh, when they know their one thing, that's the deliberate practice part. And they can get feedback just around that. So co coaches initially, um, when we first started, would probably give too much feedback, would go in and phew, you know, we quickly identified that wasn't a, that was, you know, often that was working at a deficit model. Oh, here are all the things are wrong. Let's fix it. Well, mm. we don't want to fix lessons. What we're trying to do is support, support a teacher to improve their, their standard of teaching so that every lesson moving forwards is better. So if I've identified stretch it as a goal, the most teach like a champion in that, you know, right is right. And we're going to, well, I want more in that answer. You heard it this morning. The teacher was very explicit in, oh, no, 
add a bit on, no, full sentence answer, keep going until he got the right answer. So the minimum was never accepted. If that was a goal that he was working on, now he would only get feedback around that goal. And as soon as it's achieved, this is when that relentless nature and high expectations come in. Great, well done. What's the new goal? You want me to give you a new goal? Okay, I think it's this now, or maybe they've already come up with it. But that's how we kind of tailor the coaching service to ensure that there's buy-in from the teachers because it doesn't. it's not always about what we want them to do. They are allowed choice, obviously, and that's what kind of leads to some of that professional pride and that validation of, oh, I'm getting better at this. I chose this goal and I've done it. That's cool. And that's when we still have to do retrieval with our own staff. Oh, don't forget that goal now. <laughs> Just because we're moving on, don't forget the other ones. Mm. Just a quick question. You, you mentioned sometimes the coach gives a goal and sometimes the coach he does. This is kind of an ongoing point in the the coaching the coaching world. Um, if is it often the impact coaches who are like, this is probably the next thing for you to work on? And if there's if the co- if the teacher, and especially if they're a less experienced one, is like, oh, I want to work on this thing, but the impact coach thinks actually, I think this thing's going to be more impactful at this point in time. How do you usually play that out? Yeah, that, and that's, that's a really good question. And it's one of the arts of being the impact coach. And over the course of the years, they've definitely got better at having those coaching conversations. And sometimes, sometimes there is, sometimes those con- coaching conversations are difficult because if you want this goal, but I actually think, well, hang on. So often it's because of the culture, eventually we always come back to what's best for the students. Because ultimately that's the driver of every decision in the school. And so even though you want this goal and I want this goal, we're going to have a discussion because we are ultimately we're professionals who are employed by the Department of Education and our, the school. Well, we're going to do it, you know, with explicit instruction. If your goal was, oh, I want to, I want to do some play-based learning today, I'm going to say no. It's explicit instruction because you're not self-employed. This is the school vision. This is what we're buying into. This is what we need you to do. But again, it comes back to that support. We're going to support you to be an excellent practitioner of explicit instruction. And that the conversation will be guided towards agreeing on a, on a goal that is beneficial to the students. Because I think, and maybe I haven't mentioned it yet, often the coaches will come in and not necessarily always watch the teacher. We'll actually be watching the students and what they're doing or how they're responding to, a, to um, instruction that's occurring. So today, uh, the year four teacher, Andy, I didn't really watch him too much. I was watching a group of students in front of me and what they were doing. They were always on task. They were always pair sharing. They were always using full sentence answers. And so I could see that what he was doing and the responses elicited from the students was spot on. So that was, that was pretty good. That's great. I think we've got, I mean, such a rich picture of all the things you do here or a lot of the things I'm sure you do even more things um, to build teacher expertise. You know, you've got your inductions, you've got the way that you send people out and then bring that knowledge back and that and then reteach it so thereby consolidating the lessons for the people who went away but also disseminating the knowledge there's the incredible focus on you know a whole day per week on planning i think that's that's blown me away i think it's going to blow a lot of people away you know reading groups and so on it's it's fantastic so i'm really interested to move on to Another subject, which I think kind of came next in the development after instruction started to get on track a little bit, and that's all around kind of an orderly environment or, or student behaviour because, I mean, you mentioned earlier, Lee, that there was a lot, you know, to sort out in terms of that orderly environment. I'm, I know a lot of teachers probably listening, thinking, oh, I'd love to do this kind of instruction, but, you know, my students aren't staying in their seats or they're running around or they're hitting each other or whatever it might be. So how did you begin the transformation of the school to the in 
majority of cases, um, peaceful, calm and focused learning environment that it is at the moment. It probably started maybe in an area that you might not expect and it wasn't with the students, it was with the, the, the staff. So there was a lot of work that we did around helping the staff to understand what a safe, orderly environment looks like and indeed their mindset towards uh, children who have who might be exhibiting challenging behaviours. So we developed some common understandings around behavior, teaching behaviour as part of the curriculum, as a curriculum subject and not making any assumptions that the children would understand what showing respect actually means, for example, because we'd walk into classrooms and hear, you know, this child's not showing me any respect. And quite often the children didn't have a, have a concept of what respect looked like. Dear listeners, if you're finding this discussion stimulating and you'd like to be able to easily refer back to and remember some of the most valuable takeaways from our discussion, why not consider becoming a patron of the ERRR podcast? Patrons are listeners who contribute a monthly donation to support the ongoing production of the show and, in return, receive a summary each month of the key takeaways from the episode. Patrons also receive access to an interactive transcript of each episode, meaning that if you'd like to listen back to a specific part of the episode, you can simply do a word search for a key term, then be taken directly to that spot within the podcast and listen back at the convenient click of a button. This episode's summary will include all of the insights that I gained from Chalice about what they've done to support their students to have real success and to be punching above their weight in the phenomenal way that they are. At higher tiers, ERRR supporters also have access to a members-only podcast with special insights and episodes that go beyond the standard ERRR. Clip requests of your favourite episode segments and even the opportunity to personally connect with me to discuss teaching and learning. So if you'd like an actionable summary of this episode of the ERRR podcast and to explore additional benefits such as the members-only podcast, and if you'd like to support the ongoing production of this show, simply go to patreon.com forward slash ERRR and sign up to support the show for as little as the price of a cup of coffee per month. That's patreon.com forward slash ERRR to support the show and help to keep it sustainable for the long term. Now let's jump straight back into this episode of the ERRR podcast. Could you give us an example, like what, how, how did you break down respect, for example? Even just some really basic things by making sure that you're looking at the teacher, your eyes are on the teacher when the teacher is speaking and that you are, you are not speaking. We, there's one person who talks at a time or something very basic like inside when you are speaking with the teacher, you have a calm, pleasant voice, not an accusation, accusatory, loud, aggressive kind of voice. So it was everything from body language and posturing right the way through tone, volume and the words you actually say to help them to understand what respect looks like in a school environment because that may not have been modelled for them. That's great. So changing the mindsets of staff, first of all, to help them to understand that we're moving away from blame and punishment towards restoration and like teaching and, and restoration, restoring relationships, and that everything is sort of based on the relationship that we have with children. So, so is that again in like kind of staff meetings and you'd stand up and communicate and say, we need to break it down for students. Here's how we're going to break it down. Yeah. Pretty, um, it was, it was pretty simple. There was nothing too flash or fancy about it. It was, do you want to keep on, do you want to keep on coming to work every day and feeling like you're in an unsafe, you know, unruly environment where, where your teaching's not having any impact? Do you want to keep doing that? Or should we try something different? The answer of course is trying something different. Well, the news is it has to start with us starts with us we're the adults so we have to be calm we have to be modeling what we expect we have to reinforce 
the great behaviour, when we see it, we have to catch them being good, we have to believe in them and we have to help them to understand or we have to understand that punishing children by suspending and sending them out of the classroom is probably not teaching them the behaviour that's actually required. So we started to look at teaching desired behaviours rather than punishing inappropriate behaviours. And then how did that turn from a message and, and a change of mindset for teachers into kind of a structured approach within the school? The next step was to was a great exercise we went through actually to, to develop our behaviour curriculum. We gave the teachers lots and lots and lots of time to vent about all the misbehaviour that they cannot bear in a day and then we asked them to flip that inappropriate behaviour and write it into positive statements. So if that wasn't, if the opposite of that very annoying behaviour was happening, what would it actually look like? What would the children, what would the students be doing in your classroom, in the playground, when they're lining up, when they're at the canteen, when they come to the office? What would it look like? What does the ultimate look like? And from there we developed a behaviour matrix and that became our agreed set of behaviours that we were going to teach to every child every day of the week reinforce it, model it, value it, communicate it, live it. So where and when are those ideas communicated to students and how, how are they communicated to them? In every communication that we have with a child. So we all have consistent language that we use across the entire school that the children all understand what that means. We start off by teaching the behaviour explicitly at a fortnightly assembly that's actually uh, communicated through a video. So the children see what the expected behaviour looks like and then we always video a non-example where a staff member is showing the unexpected behaviour and then we reteach the expected behaviour again and talk to them about why it's important. That's communicated to staff through a weekly newsletter and all of the resources are developed by a group of people who are charged with the responsibility of developing those resources so that we're cutting down on the workload for staff. So they're uploaded onto just our shared drive and all staff turn on the video at the same time every Monday morning and we learn it as a whole, a whole school and then we reinforce, 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 reward incorporate the language and continue. Mm, it's so great. And I was lucky enough to see one of those videos today with some great acting in it. And for listeners, the kind of thing it was, was, I mean, this words up on the screen that said, talked about the expected behavior. It was quite funny because the teachers actually acted out. They were pretending to be students in the classroom and the narrator said, um, I don't, I forget the names, but I'm going to make one up. You know, Harry was walking past Frank. Harry knocked Frank's drink bottle on the ground. And the example was he he picked it up straight away and apologized and continued on. And then they said, you know, what about this was the, the chalice way or the expected behaviors? And then the next video was Harry walked past Frank. He knocked his drink bottle off. He just kept going. Frank got angry and shouted at Harry, uh, what part of, what about this isn't? So it's just incredibly explicit. It's a video on a shared drive, as you mentioned, and it showed, showed weekly or fortnightly. Um, and I was interested to hear that you, you do it in the classroom. So the teacher will show the video to all the students in every simultaneous in every classroom at different, um, within different classes and facilitated by different teachers. And then there'll be an age appropriate conversation about that that kind of draws out from the students what they saw. So, I mean, we often hear and I've often said that this idea of behaviour is a curriculum and we need to we need to teach it, an idea that I first heard from Tom Bennett. But, you know, this is a fantastic example of exactly how that's done. I saw it in the UK as well. And, in fact, that's that's how we started talking, um, Lee, because we were at the Science for Learning Leadership Accelerator in Sydney a couple of months ago and I mentioned how 
Ted Rags St. Luke's had these videos that they played at the start of every term to show students how they expect them to enter the classroom. And you came up to me at recess and said, we do videos as well. And we got talking and now I'm here today. So that's great. Is there anything else around the, the behaviour side of things, communicating that message, setting those expectations, the behaviour curriculum that you do that you think is crucial to that success? I think that um, valuing, so for me personally, I think two things that schools teach are really important. First things to teach kids to read and secondly is to teach them to behave. Everything else is icing on the cake, but that's the foundation in in this kind of an environment that we have to get right. And part of the behaviour is acknowledging that children have large feelings and big feelings that bubble over and sometimes uh, derail their very best efforts to be following our behaviour expectations. And so the other component of what we do is place a heavy, emphasis and importance on their social and their emotional well-being. So we do have spaces set up in the school, in, in every classroom and then we have a communal space that's set up in the central part of the school that helps students to work through any of their very large feelings with staff who are present to be able to support either through co-regulating or restoring a relationship and then helping them to reflect on their behaviour. So we take the teaching of behaviour very seriously and put a lot of emphasis on the children's emotional well-being as well because if they aren't well um, and stable and feeling safe, then they're not going to be able to cognitively, cognitively learn any of the academic skills that we're trying to teach. So let's let's talk about a scenario, say um, a, a student isn't, um, I, I actually saw a bit of a progression on the board. It was like reminder one, reminder two, relocation, reflection, something like that. But imagine a student does play up. They might get a bit worked up. You've, we sp- we've spoken about a number of times today how students here, some of them may come from a challenging background with not the best modelling. They may have some serious kind of anger issues or regulation issues and they kind of flip their lid and they flip a table or something like that. What, what happens after that at Chalice? Well, it's all rather individualised, but the, the, the basic premise that we work from is that lessons shouldn't be interrupted. We should not be allowing any kind of behaviour that's going to disrupt the teacher from being able to get on with the important task of, of teaching. So the behaviour the teacher would send for, uh, would use her, his or her phone to send uh, a, a behaviour referral through to what we call our first responders. So there are people who are employed to go and assist that child to come out of the classroom and to discuss his or her feelings about what led them to feel the way they did prior to them acting out. So that might be that the child simply needs to come out and be left alone for a period of time. So they just move into a chill space that's uh, an area with just soft furnishings. There's nothing in there that they can break and there's nothing in there that can harm themselves, especially if they're quite uh, agitated. And then once they've gone through a bit, they're heading sort of um, back towards baseline, they might be prepared to move into a different space to work with a staff member about talking through their feelings. And then they'd work into a reflection area where they can talk about uh, what they could do differently next time and that's when the real teaching of the replacement behavior takes place cool and i saw some great kind of reflection sheets today trying to remember what was on them was what was the expected behavior that you that you struggled with what was the impact on others and how did you feel and i thought often these reflection sheets say things like you know what did what did you do wrong or what was what did you what rule or what value did you, you contra- <laughs> contravene? Yeah. What was the impact on others and what needs to happen next time? So it was quite interesting to see this, how did you feel built in there, which I thought was unique to what compared to what I've seen, but also really important in terms of 
in terms of building that awareness. Mm. I think one of the really important parts of that reflection process is to help the children link their feelings to their behaviour. So when they're able to, when they they sort of think about the, the question of how did you feel, then the person working with them is able to say, oh, so I understand that when you felt angry, you decided to punch or when you felt angry, you decided to flip the table or hide under the table or whatever it might be. So what do you think we might be able to do differently next time that you start to feel these feelings? And then how did it actually feel? How did you know that you were starting to feel angry? And the child can start to identify my heart was thumping or my palms were sweaty or my under or my stomach became in a squeezy knot or my face felt hot. So then they start to actually really understand physically what what response their body is going through and then try and link that to a replacement behaviour from the very first time they notice the the their body beginning to respond because we're trying to get them to intervene earlier that we're trying to get them to recognise their feelings earlier before it actually reaches a peak and it disrupts them, their learning and the teacher and the learning of all the other children. So so over an extended period of time, maybe you can share a narrative of a student with a changed name or something who who, who started off early on really struggling to regulate their behaviour and the kind of impacts of this approach on them and their regulation over a number of years here at Charles? Mm. Oh, look, there are so many stories that uh, it's not easy for me to have to, you know, think too hard at all, but I will obviously change names. So I'm thinking right now of a year five student who's been with us for many years, volatile background, uh, very dysregulated behaviour. The child follows his own, uh, always followed his own plan. So we use language like, you know, is this a group, the group plan or is this a me plan that you're following? The student would always follow the me plan. Uh, He had very has very little support from home. So through a quality relationship with his teacher, the student and the teacher have identified that the student has an opt-out card, a chill card that he's able to use. I think it might be one card per a block of the day. So one before lunch, one between lunch and recess and one after, after recess. And he's allowed to, as long as he passes that card over to the teacher, he's allowed to exit the classroom with no questions asked about where he's going, what's happened or how he's feeling. He has a specific area that he goes to in school and he has a specific couple of people who are his go-to people to talk with about how he's feeling. He regu- he uh, monitors his own time frame that he's outside of the classroom. So for him in particular, it's a very brief amount of time out and then he returns to the classroom. And over several years, and it has taken years because this isn't e- something that's easy to correct or to, you know, to be able to show improvements around, this boy has been able to regulate his behaviour to the point where he's not using his chill-out cards He's won a recent award at one of our assemblies and it has been a very profound change in, in that student's um, behaviour. Obviously, there's some other things that have uh, have helped support him, but, you know, that, that would be very specific to that individual. Like he's involved in extracurricular programs here in school that help develop his sense of worth and help him give mastery over a particular skill that he's really interested in learning more about. So he started to see himself in a different light. You know, mum comes to the assembly, takes a photograph of him for the first time. You know, he's feeling pretty pumped about himself and it's all because he's been able to regulate his behaviour and not explode. That's so amazing. I mean, we often talk about the importance of students being able to, you know, read and write for their future prospects. But, and I mean, Mark mentioned, I think you both mentioned the, the kind of school to prison pipeline earlier. If there's one thing that 
puts students at most risk of ending up in prison. It's an inability to regulate themselves. You know, they might just get frustrated with someone in the street and punch him in the face and suddenly, you know, that's assault. So as much as anything, I think this story of how you take it so seriously, how to support students with their regulation. And, you know, not, you know, a lot of the, the schools that I visited in the UK also have really high expectations and have reputations for that. But sometimes those expectations are met by not allowing students who can't regulate to come to the school, right? Or they allow them to come and they don't, they don't allow them to stay. And so to actually take that on and say, we have incredibly high behavioural expectations, we're going to teach them. And then for students who can't do it, we're going to give them the support that they actually need is just, is, is amazing. I, I know there's a framework that you actually use and there's some training that all of your staff's done. What's the name of that? Just so listeners can check it out. Positive Behaviour in School, so PBS. And is there a, if people Google that, will they just find it? They will find it, yeah. Great. We'll put a, put a note in the show notes in relation to that. Listeners, we just had a break for a few different things that were happening at the school. But just coming back and still on the, the positive behaviour management idea, Kelly's going to share. As Lee had mentioned, we introduced uh, PBS and it was a it was a large initiative that we brought into the school to change behaviour, to teach expectations and teach behaviour. One of the areas that we decided to pick up on was an assembly. Assembly was one of those moments where you knew it was coming. You dreaded the fact that you had to go to assembly because you it didn't. It always felt, you know, that feeling when you know something's going to happen. That constant your heart, feeling your of heart starts beating. And- yeah, yeah, and you're just going something bad is going to happen and you just felt uneasy and not quite right and sometimes the assemblies would be quite unruly. You'd walk away and you'd feel like your day was done you just wanted to go home and each week it, it would happen and when we brought in PBS we we worked around what were the expectations. So when you, when you go back to what Lee was saying before, we talked about all the things that was really bad, all the things that annoyed us uh, with behaviour and then switched it to the positives. So um, there was quite a few areas um, of assembly that we would say. So, for instance, when you applauded someone getting a certificate, instead of just clapping beautifully, it was an uproar and then it would take them a long time to come back down and stop. We brought that in. This is how we practice it. How do you walk into an assembly because, and how do you leave assembly? And uh, how do we respect guests and, and speakers. And so we would actually have mock assemblies before we actually got to the the, the actual performance of, of coming to an assembly. So if they didn't walk in calm and quietly and orderly, go back, try it again. We would practice. So we would have a, pra- um, a mock speaker and now we're going to practice clapping everyone. Are you ready? Clap, clap, clap and stop. No, that took too long. We went too far. We're going to try it again. So each, again, just like a lesson, just like teaching a concept or a literacy um, session or a math session, we taught them how to walk into assembly, how we walked out of assembly, how we clap, how we respect our um, guest speaker, where do our eyes go? Do we have hats on or do we have hats off? You know, mm-hmm. no, and and we even had it was oh, we had booing at an assembly, especially for guest speakers. It was just that moment where you just didn't want guest speakers to come or, or outside people. Once we introduced it, we we taught the behaviours, we practiced, we came in, we came out ready for the big day. 
after about two months, it was this refreshing moment where we looked at each other and went, we've done it. Let's high five ourselves because it was just that moment we walked away and we didn't have that feeling anymore, that, that feeling that something was going to happen. Parents got on board because this was what, it, what was expected. Children got on board. This was what was expected. Uh, do you remember, Kelly, when we uh, used to have to then talk with parents about, okay, parents, welcome to our assembly. We're actually um, practising being respectful audience members, so please remove your hat for the national anthem. Uh, please turn off your mobile phones. Please stop talking to one another and hold on to your little children. You, you can't let them go running around the playground screaming and shouting while an assembly is in, you know, in progress. Please sit them on on your lap and talk them through very quietly and calmly what they might be seeing so you can focus their attention. So we had to do a lot of training of parents to understand how to be a respectful audience member, just teaching the children the difference between how you might clap and cheer at a football game compared to how you might applaud, politely applaud, um, a friend receiving a merit certificate. So leaving nothing to chance. That was the start of where we are today when, you know, where we are able to, to the point of being able to help a child that is dysregulated, bring them back down to baseline. Uh, and I know that that's not the end goal because we've got so much more to do, but what started us off was introducing PBS and building that culture, you know, part of, it was a buy-in from the school and not all staff were on board because back then they wanted that punitive consequences that's not what PBS is all about. It's changing that behaviour. It's changing those expectations. It's changing our language and our language and consistent language was starting to change. And that was that start of our journey of being there at assembly and thinking, oh my God, get me out of here to where we are now. We can have a whole school assembly and have 2,000 people out there and it's beautiful. And you don't have that feeling you just give a child a look, they, they know exactly what needs to happen, uh, a hand goes up and you don't walk away having that fear of <laughs> what's, what's about to happen. The whole, our whole culture um, of the, the, the behaviour expectations has changed because as we know more, we, we learn more, we know more, we implement more, we change more and we build on what we started with. So I'm really, I was part of the founding um, PBS committee member. Um, I was the coordinator of it and we're, I'm really proud of where we started thinking how we're going to get there to such an amazing, calm and orderly school that people come out to see what we do. So I'm pretty proud of that. As you should be, it's amazing. I, I mean, those comments about kind of parental expectations at assembly and so on are a nice segue into the next thing I was really keen to talk about. The story that you, well, the picture you've painted so far, you know, you came in Lee, there were these big challenges. The first thing you identified was instruction. It's been a big focused effort on that. Building on the back of that, identified that regulation was a big issue Then focusing on that. And then it sounds like the third or, or around about the third thing was, well, now that we've, you know, had so much of a focus on students, it's time for us to focus on parents. So what have you what have you done and what do you do in terms of parental education and engaging the community in the school? Mm. It sounds linear. In actual fact, it wasn't. There were three large strategies that we, that we put in place from 2005 and they were improve the quality of instruction with a focus on reading, improve and support 
the capacity of parents from birth through to three years of age so that students would have or children would have a really high quality early childhood period of, of their life. And the third strategy was to develop a distributed leadership model so that all of the, the success of the school wasn't built around one or a couple of people. It, we had a distributed approach. So although it sounded linear in the way that we first told the story, those three strategies actually occurred simultaneously. Uh, so what we did from from the parent perspective is have a look at what, what was our kindergarten data showing us. We identified that oral language was a huge area of deficit for our students, as was their ability to regulate their behaviour. I had a look at what was happening in our local community that was available to parents um, after they'd had a child, after they'd had a baby, and what supports were available and what early learning experiences were available. And uh, there wasn't a lot that was reliable or regular. Some of it depended on small NGOs coming in to deliver a program for a finite period of time when funding was available. And so what we did was opened up a classroom space for a little playgroup to start on school premises and we brought people into that playgroup who had expertise, access to services or referral pathways that would support parents no matter what they or their child needed. So uh, what that meant was over a period period of time we had a child health nurse on school premises we brought in a speech pathologist an occupational therapist the playgroups began to grow so we put on more than one then it um, became you know four times a week families could come and bring their little toddlers to school and then we moved into with the support of the Mindaroo Foundation we were able to develop a three-year-old program as an early intervention and school readiness program for children and parents so what it now looks like is the Chalice Parenting and Early Learning Centre has a full-time child health nurse who is here on site from the time a baby is born, the nurse is notified, and that's the first time we know that we have a new little one that's been brought into our school community. And we connect with that mum and those that family from as early an age as we possibly can. So by the time mum and dad or the family bring the little baby into school to be weighed, they're coming into school, they're, seeing, they're being introduced to school staff, they're meeting me, they're meeting key people within the our school environment and we kind of keep a safety net around them right the way through those first three years of life until they are ready to start our four-year-old program and then they, they've moved into the, the schooling system by then. So what that means is that we're able to identify any delays or disabilities as early as possible. We were able to remediate around speech pathology or occupational um, therapy sort of deficit areas. Uh, we were able to support parents with any of their own mental health or any of their additional needs that they may have. We can settle any anxieties about school and we've made the transition from school, from home to school as smooth as possible because they've been coming to school for three years before it's actually time to start, you know, uh, four-year-old kindergarten. That's amazing. <laughs> it's it's crazy and and i mean what evident what what impact has this had on on the school and the, and the school community oh goodness so many impacts um we have uh, qualitative and quantitative data that shows that for our children who have been through the three-year-old programs their mean score performance outweighs the children who haven't been through the pre-kindergarten program in areas like NAPLAN we can show you the that on average not always but on average the attendance rates are higher we have that intangible difficult to quantify value 
value around trust. So the trust that the parents have with us is extremely high because they've known us for a very long time and we've been supporting them right the way through any of their parenting challenges and um, difficulties that they may have faced. So trust is incredibly high. And when you have trust in a community or within the community, that just generates a lot of buy-in and belief. So it's everything from Parent volu- parents volunteering in our community right the way through to NAPLAN performance. The evidence is very, very, very clear. If we intervene early, intervene often, intervene at the point of need in a respectful, non-judgmental, relationship-based manner that has a dual focus, parenting and the parent and the child, not just working with the child, but the parent and the child, the outcomes are incredible. And, you know, one thing I'm learning about you, Lee, is that if, if anything can be improved any further, you're going to strive to do that. So you're even going pre-birth now, aren't you? Can you tell us about what's in the future in terms of these programs? Oh, absolutely. So something that we haven't yet talked about is the partnership that we have with Curtin University. I may or may not have mentioned earlier that uh, we have children who are identified with some signi- fairly significant needs and access to therapy isn't always uh, readily accessible and available. Private therapy is out of the question for the majority of our families, so they rely on the public health system that often has wait lists associated with it. And so what we did over, over, well over 10 years ago now is develop a wonderful partnership with Curtin University. They bring all of their uh, fourth year allied health students out to our school and they work throughout the year across eight different disciplines now. So on our school premises, every day of the week, we will have a rotation of speech pathologists, occupational therapists, um, physiotherapists, clinical psychologists, nursing students, dietitians, social workers workers and the most recent discipline that we've brought on board is GPs. So we have all of those fourth year students at our school around the clock providing therapy to our students. So we have hundreds of students who are able to um, receive therapy every day of the week, either individually or in groups across all of those different disciplines. And the newest discipline that we're bringing on board is a midwifery service. So we're developing a midwifery clinic that will work inside our parenting centre. And that's going to allow a midwifery student to be partnered up with a pregnant lady who would like that kind of support. The midwife will journey throughout the pregnancy with the with the lady right the way until six weeks post-birth. And then the midwife will pass over, will transfer that relationship over to our child health nurse who will already know the mum because the midwife and the um, child health nurse are in the same building. Offices are next door to each other. So it's a beautiful seamless transition of the relationship. And then the mum is now, now has the little tiny baby and moves into all of our regular parenting programs, supports and services. That's great. And I mean, what we know about the research around midwives is that 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 continuity of care is one of the most, or if not the most important factor, and you're making it happen here. How do you you make all this happen? Like you're basically, you're providing a wraparound service for this whole community. I'm sure there's lots of people listening here and they were, when you were talking about the instruction thing, they were going, oh yeah, that sounds good. We could do some instruction, instructional stuff and then behaviour and people think, oh yeah, we could, we could probably start to do a bit of behaviour. This is, you know, those two things together is quite a bit, but we can probably manage it. And then you're talking about running this parental education and then midwifery service and all these other services. I'm just, how, how on earth are you managing to set this all up and make it all happen? So it didn't all happen at the same time. So you have to work out what your core business is first and get your core business right. But I think that overarching premises premises is work out what the community need 
Like work out what they need, work out what the children need. And if you if you can't provide it yourself, go and find it and bring it in. Just whatever it takes, just... Just do it. Just just do it, yeah. We, I mean, we don't sit around with a lot of spare time. We're fairly relentless, not fairly, we're, we're relentless and we're very driven and we're very, very determined and committed. So whenever we see an injustice or something that's inequitable or something that our children and our families need, we just simply make it happen. We always try and stay up with research and what the evidence base says. We don't spend any time or waste any money or energy on strategies that are ineffective or aren't going to have high impact. So we're always looking for what's going to yield the highest rate of return on our investment, whether that be time, professional learning, money, whatever that might be. But whatever we invest, we expect a high rate of return. So everything we do has a really high evidence base behind it. I have been strongly influenced by Jeffrey Canada's sort of Harlem Children's Project oh, yeah. concept. And so I've had a look at the elements of that that I think can be replicated here in school and, and the, the things that don't have any relevance to us. And I've picked the eyes out of some Canadian models that I have seen when I've been overseas and we've just um we just give kids and people whatever they need to thrive that's great I mean what what do these these partnerships and where's the money coming from who's funding these are these generally partnerships with a community service that's already established and you just tie it into the school or how does that work and in addition to that you know you've said you've got multiple full-time coaches you've got people here basically on call to do that regulation work with young people how is that funded Hmm, well, that, that could be an entirely separate podcast, Ollie. <laughs> so some of the partnerships already exist in the community but are delivered in a way that's not accessible to our families. So we just ask for things to be relocated so that our families to here at school so that our families um, can access it. What's an example of that? An example would be, say, speech pathology or occupational therapy. It's delivered up at the local hospital, but if you don't have transport to the hospital, you won't take your child to the service and the, the child will miss out. So we can get some of that relocated to our school and it be delivered here in school. So you just contact the hospital, you say, we need a speech <laughs> pathologist here. Yeah. What do you need? We can give you a room. How often can you come? Or like, what does sounds, it take? Sounds easy, doesn't it? Yeah, no. What, what does it take? It takes a lot because typically, you know, you can't have every school going to their health department saying, this is what we need. Can you give it to us, please? So it takes a lot. It takes a lot of having a really clear narrative. It takes a really good understanding of what's in it for them and what's in it for you. So any relationship or partnership that you set up has to have mutual benefit. If, it, if there's not a mutual benefit, it's unlikely to occur. Some of our partnerships do require a great deal of money and the Chalice Parenting and Early Learning Centre has been generously funded by the Mindaroo Foundation for well over 10 years now. So without that funding, we wouldn't have been able to have the early focus on early learning and parenting support. Some of the partnerships are completely free of charge, like the partnership with Curtin University. So speech pathology and occupational therapy costs a lot of money. Our families can't afford it, but speech pathologists and occupational therapists have to train somewhere so why not have them train at your school you know they're always the universities are always looking for a placement for their students schools need service so it's of mutual benefit so that one costs very little that's you know that's a very cost effective partnership to answer your question we're pretty innovative with funding we don't waste a cent on things that aren't important and reading and teaching kids to behave are our core business so in order for teachers to know how to teach children they need to be coached we all need a coach we all need someone who has more expertise than we do so uh, we use our funding very flexibly to make sure teachers get what they need so that they can give children what they need. Mm. What are some things you don't spend money on that you think other schools do that you've, or maybe that you've cut out along the journey? 
Okay, so this is just my opinion. This is not the opinion of my colleagues sitting alongside me, but I don't value or spend a lot of time or, or effort or money on, on technology, which is probably why your internet keeps cutting out here today. <laughs> um, look, I, I understand that it's important and it has great value and the children need to um, understand how to navigate their way through various devices and access and access information. And I think that is a skill that can come later. I think our core business must be reading and teaching children to behave. I don't necessarily spend a lot of time or money on some of our curriculum areas that I feel are the icing on the cake if we haven't got the ingredients of the cake sorted out first. Okay. So just back to that core business idea. To Mark and Kelly, I just want, you've both worked with Lee for a while now. I'm keen to hear from you about, because I often don't get to ask a question like this because I often just talk to the leader. What is it about Lee that has enabled her to lead the team and made you want to stay as part of this journey? I've, I've heard people say that here they're often lifers. They once they once they come they they stay and that's despite the incredibly challenging environment and what can be a very stressful job and the fact that you all work so hard. So what is it about how Lee has led this school that has been incredibly effective and that other leaders might want to try to emulate? Yeah, very big question. And Lee is someone that I admire and is an inspiration to me. She. Um, <laughs> walking out the room. <laughs> She's trying to run away. Lee, the point is that you listen to this and you and you soak it up, okay? You can't run away. Come come back, sit down and uh, bask, in, bask in it, please. Um, I have been at Chalice since 2007, so I have not been anywhere else um, and I've been privileged to be a part of Chalice since I've graduated. And everything I do, I think the, the leader of, that I've become is because I watch Lee like a hawk and I emulate and I will never be her and I'm never, I, I don't think I'll, I, I want to be myself, but I emulate her. So when she is in um, a meeting with parents, I watch, I observe, I take notes on how she deals with a tricky parent or a, a concerned parent or I watch the way she works with um, my colleagues and all of those things have moulded and transformed me into the leader that I am. Each and every time she talks, and I've been listening to her for a very long time, uh, you know, again on the weekend we just had um, an induction with new teachers and I hear the same stories from her, but each and every time she inspires me, she motivates me, probably at some point brings me some to some tears because she fights for what she believes in and she fights for the injustice and we work out how we can build that justice back up. And she has got my back 100% and she has everyone's back here. Everyone that works for her, she has got their back and is willing to do anything for her. So I have always said to her that no matter where she goes, I will follow her because, you know, she she's the person that I look up to and want to aspire to be when I'm older. <laughs> That's great, Kelly. So um, I just think she, yeah, she's she's amazing and Chalice is Chalice because of, of the hard work that she does. She really works hard and the payoff is the community that we have now. So I just love working with her and I, I love watching her just watch and observe and take in. <laughs> so One, one follow-up on that. In terms of the um, having every staff member's back, 
this is a challenge for for a leader, right? Because sometimes this tr- tricky decisions need to be made around staffing. So, but back to you on this one, Lee. Number one, how do you make sure you select the right staff in the first place? And number two, if a mistake's made there, is there a case where you know people have to get let go, or do you just always have people's back and you as, you as a team are so good at capacity building that everyone can be brought along for the journey? Our recruitment starts with the advertisement. So we're really clear about what we're looking for in successful applicants and we make sure there's no surprises. So the entire process is around making sure that people understand what they're, what they're going to come, step into if they accept a position here so that there's no surprises for people. Our, our interview process reinforces what is expected and how we do things here because there are a whole pile of things that aren't negotiable. And that doesn't mean we're dictatorial in the way we ask people to teach, but it does mean that we have a fairly good understanding of what high impact teaching looks like. And we're not going to accept anything that's just mediocre because that won't serve the children or the students. So we're pretty clear about the advertisement. We're clear about the interview. We're clear about our induction and we're clear with our coaching and our instructional model that exists. I do have a lot of faith in our coaches and I do also acknowledge that despite all of our recruitment processes that we have in place, that that's sometimes the reality of what you think you're going to get when you come to Chalice uh, falls short of what it what you actually get. And so we the, one of the very first things that I say to our new staff is that I will always respect anybody who comes to me and says, thanks, I've given it my best shot, but it's simply not for me. And I'll always help them to move out of the school and to find another position because I acknowledge it's not. And I don't want people to burn out or to give up the love of teaching because they're in a context where they're just too confronted. So I suppose we just have some real clarity around what we expect. And if it comes to the time when, despite all of our great teaching, the teacher hasn't identified that this place isn't for them and they're still not able to do what is required. And this is generally if it's an attitudinal thing. If it's an attitudinal thing, if the mindset isn't there, that's often what I, what I can't change. If you don't like kids, I can't change that either. It's kind of a prerequisite, isn't it, if you're a teacher, that you like kids. But then we, well, I just have to have one of those hard conversations. I think philosophically you and I, don't agree. Uh, we're not going to change the direction the school is going in. Uh, it doesn't look like you're coming in the same direction. Maybe you'd be happier somewhere else and I can help you to get there. Makes a lot of sense, Mark. I'm just trying to decide whether to bring Lee back down to earth following all of the superlatives or... Um, <laughs> but yeah, what, what, are, what are the things that other leaders should be doing that will help that you've learned from Lee or, or from your experience more broadly here that will help them to do a better job where they are? I think first and foremost, exactly like what the qualities that make a great teacher with, with the students in front of them. Lee is a leader who is relationships first. She sets up uh, the conditions in all of her conversations or whether she's modelling the way where what she does and how she interacts with the staff. And hopefully it's a, a principle that can be replicated by other people, by other people is the fact that she brings out the very best in all of us. So whether that's through, you know, being passionate about something, about the unfairness of people born into this postcode and being penalised by geography and the, and the social justice issues that we're trying to improve, the inspiring speeches or, the, or, you know, just the high expectations on all that we do just today, walking around the school, um, showing, you, showing you, Ollie, our school. I think I noticed Lee pick up five, six pieces of rubbish as we walked around the school because the standard 
for all that we do is high. And as a person, as a competitive person who's driven to succeed in all I do and, and be excellent, I've got a perfect role model uh, showing me the way to do that. And that's in every element of instruction here at the school, in leadership here at the school. Well, there's another thing. So Lee is, Lee is up to date with the research. Lee knows exactly what great teaching looks like and how literacy should be taught. And I think that's a benefit to a leader of a school if they know what good teaching is and what's involved in the science of uh, reading or the science of learning if we're going broader. I think that's a real asset because, again, you can help model the way. Yeah, I could go on with a whole heap of adjectives, so I won't. <laughs> but essentially, it's always the, the motto is keep calm and let the principal handle it because there's nothing, <laughs> there's nothing... There's nothing here that Lee either doesn't know or the fact that she does surround herself with experts or she has absolutely no problem going, we don't know that, we need to know that, let's go and find someone who can give us that or teach us that or give us a particular resource because we have to break down every single barrier that's in our way to ensure that our kids get the very best and so if we've got it already, great. And if we haven't, well, then Lee's pretty driven and we'll go and get it. So I think if anyone listening, that you know, hopefully you've got your own Lee, Musumechi, and, and principal that can lead that way. Or if not, go and do it. There's no, you know, don't put a limit on your own uh, abilities. Go and seek what is out there. And sure, you can't replicate our story straight away. And you might just borrow or, or innovate on bits that you may hear. But absolutely, if... If there's something better out there for your students, then it's kind of our our professional and ethical job to, to go and do that. More learning and, and, and going out and finding those answers. What are some, so we've mentioned positive behavior systems. We've mentioned Harlem Children's Zone. What are some other things that people, that have been really influential to you as a school? Uh, we mentioned Hollingsworth and Yabara, that people might like to go out to in terms of going back to the original source to get a, bit of bit more inspiration and information. I would suggest that if you're working in a low socioeconomic area, you need to understand poverty and you need to understand the, pov- like the poverty framework and understand uh, the mindsets that, that is associated with sort of um, with, with people who are coming from a poverty background because then that will then help you to understand why instant gratification is something that sort of um, prevails in these kinds of communities. So you might wonder why families don't pay their $40 voluntary contributions but they'll send their child in a $60, you know, Jordan cap you know, there's just the pri- there is a difference in priorities, but it will help you to understand that. And I think under- being a trauma-informed school um, would would be something that you absolutely need to understand the impact of trauma on brain development and on self-regulation and executive functioning. So, in relation to those two things, what do people read or watch or listen to to get their head around the, that that mindset of disadvantage or different priority sets? And also, what do people read or watch or listen to to, to get their heads around the trauma piece? Bridges Out of Poverty will help people understand uh, all about the poverty cycle and I think obviously the science of reading. You absolutely have to understand how to teach children to read. And uh, therapeutic crisis intervention in schools is is the specific training that we've all undergone to make sure we understand how to respond to high highly escalated behaviour. Fantastic. Um, something that we haven't touched on as much as we could have and that you've written all over this page here, Lee, is the word culture. Did you want to add something on the culture piece, the, the role of culture in the journey that the school's gone on and, and the, some, the, some of the concrete things you've done and the school has done to, to build that culture? 
obviously culture is, uh, for me, it's the enabling factor and the, the, the driving force behind what will either prevent or allow success to occur in a school. So winning over the hearts and minds of people is really important and I think that starts with a core understanding of, of the why you're doing what you're doing and why it matters and why everybody should be paying attention to it every day really matters. So helping people to understand the postcode and what the typical trajectory of our families will be if we aren't on the top of our game with high impact evidence-based strategies every day of the week, high quality relationships. We're actually setting people up for a lifetime of poor health, low opportunity and actually misery. So if you want to be a part of that, then that's not where no one, nobody wants to come to school each day and know that you're not having an impact and that the children you are teaching are going to end up in prison or without a job or not even make it to high school. So if we don't want that negative stuff to happen and if we really want to mobilise this community and make it socially just and equitable, then we have to do a whole pile of stuff that we know will make a difference to the life outcomes of, of people. And so if you want to subscribe to a kind of movement that is bigger than each of us as individuals and makes a true difference to the lives of children and families, then there's a whole, uh, there's kind of a way of thinking. And it's, there's some really simple things, you know, we don't think of um, challenges, we just think of, or we don't think of problems, we just think of challenges. We make sure that we bring our A game to school every day of the week. We take personal responsibility for whether the children have uh, achieved or uh, d demonstrated a, a mastery of a concept or not, because, you know, it's not that the children are failing, it's actually a reflection on whether you've taught well or not. So we do accept personal responsibility when our data's not great. So it's all about making sure that we're working for and with one another for the greater good of the children. And that's who we're here for. So with all of that comes um, just, you know, the, the way we interact with people should make them leave the interaction feeling good about themselves. So we're always trying to give people what they need in order to thrive. That means that we have professional courtesy but also deep respect for one another. Everything we do is always around about the children. So this should be an inspirational place to come to work every day of the week. It should be joyful, that people should feel supported. Professionally, their judgment should be valued. They should be given the skills and the tools and the resources and the time and the energy and the opportunity to be able to thrive. We give them what they need in order to be able to thrive. That's amazing. Final words. I often ask guests to kind of have a call to action or anything that like listeners to go away way today and do or to explore or to listen to and so on. What, what would be your final, final few words? We have a pretty si simple narrative at Chalice that describes a really complex story and it's better than postcode results together as a community, the Chalice way. So my advice would be write your own story. There's no finishing line. Write your own story and then live it. Lee, Mark and Kelly, I can't think of a, a group of people or a school who have written their own story and are living it uh, more than you guys. Uh, I've seen a lot of schools around the world. I visit a lot of schools and I, I can say this is the most inspired I've been in terms of the, the schools that I've actually seen. And that's because you've got everything, right? You've got the instruction, you've got the community, you've got the behaviour, you've got the culture, you've got the care. I mean, I can't share what happened um, in the little break we had in this podcast because there's like, you know, personal stuff happening, happening and stuff. But your connection to your community here was shown through, through what happened there and it's mind-blowing. I hope that listeners have managed to soak up some of that inspiration and have a sense of 
a renewed sense of mission themselves and i and i also hope that more people can can come and see what's happening here hopefully don't get too inundated <laughs> um but you know may, maybe i mean i know you have a lot of visitors already i hope people want to you know donate and support the school and the great work and and to continue to learn because it's so inspiring what's happening here and you know harlem children's zone groups like that they're really well known but i think what's happening here is just as good and should be known just as well so thank you so much for having me. Thanks for hosting me on basically the last day with students, putting on some lessons for me. And I'm definitely keen to stay in touch, continue to learn from you guys and continue to spread the word. Thank Absolute you, pleasure. Ollie. Thank thank you. Ollie. Thanks, Ollie. Thank you for listening to this episode of the ERRR podcast. If you're keen to never miss a podcast, a blog post or other exciting educational announcement, then jump onto ollilovell.com forward slash subscribe for my weekly summary of key takeaways on all things teaching and learning. That web address for a weekly email summary, again, is ollilovell.com forward slash subscribe. If you enjoyed this episode, then please share it with friends and colleagues. And if you've got any suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear on the ERRR podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Or if you've got any questions, comments, thoughts, or reflections on this episode or any other ERRR episode, I always welcome contact from listeners via Twitter or email. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning.